You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is an Airwaves Media Podcast. Something strange was afoot in an Iowa elementary school earlier this year. They didn't know who, they didn't know how or why. Sometimes on desks and bookshelves, sometimes in the middle of the room, someone was going around the school and leaving rubber duckies. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. They're small, squeezable, cute, and a ubiquitous part of an American childhood. Even if you didn't actually have a rubber ducky, there's a near-perfect chance you knew what they were. You probably had something with the duck design on it. It's come to be an icon for children or childhood, and despite rampant coca-colonization, a word I love, which means the spread of American culture through capitalism, it never really caught on in other places. Let's dispense with one little bit of my inevitable pedantry. Rubber duck is a misnomer. They're pretty much all made of the cheaper vinyl. Okay, with that done, I can relax and enjoy the pedagogy. Now in their defense, rubber ducks were originally made of rubber, Solid rubber, in fact, which meant that, ironically, they didn't float. In 1933, a latex supplier licensed and produced a series of Disney character bath floaties, the most popular being Donald and Donna Duck. Who the hell is Donna Duck, you ask? That's just the name that Daisy had when she first premiered in Mr. Duck Steps Out in 1940. Disney characters have always been, and if their megacorp status comes to fruition, always will be quite popular, and their license fees have always been steep as well. This encouraged some toy makers to find similar things that might sell as well. In 1952, Dietrich Rempel of Ohio developed a machine to cast hollow rubber items, a process called rotocasting. Now, I couldn't be asked to read the microfiche-sized font on the patent, but going off the picture and things I've seen on modern marvels and chocolate-making videos, it looks like a mold into which you put enough of the liquid medium to cover the inside to the desired thickness, and the machine rotates it the entire time to get even coverage while it sets. Rempel patented that and at least one toy. Hollow toy figure with extensible member. It's not what you think. Well, I mean, it could be. It was one of those bulbous toys that when you squeeze it, some body part sticks out. I know, it sounds like filth, but just hold on. In this case, it was a only slightly terrifying clown who stuck his tongue out when you squoze his paunch. In addition to his firsts, Rempel's company, Rempel Manufacturing, was also the last company in the U.S. to make real rubber toys until they too stopped in the mid-1960s. So what's all this about rubber and non-rubber anyway? 
Colloquially, we use rubber to refer to almost any pliant and pliable plasticky product. But real and proper rubber comes from rubber trees, Hevier brasiliensis, which is native to South America. The Maya, who'd lived in the Amazon region for centuries, had long been extracting the white sap from these trees, which can grow to be over a hundred feet tall, and using it to make balls and toys. Bonus fact, balls, dolls, and tops are the three kinds of toys found in every society on Earth. The sap is extracted by making a groove through the bark into the cambium layer, the growing part of the trunk, and trays are suspended under each groove to collect the sap. Rather like collecting maple sap to make syrup, but not nearly as tasty. I assume. Only about 30% of the sap is the rubber that we need, and it has to be filtered, diluted, treated with acid, and all kinds of things to get that out. The last stage is actually to smoke the proto-rubber to destroy any residual proteins that would rot over time. According to my sources, the substance and the tree picked up the name rubber in 1770 when chemist Joseph Priestley used a bit of it to rub a pencil line off some paper and voila. But I am going to leave an asterisk on that one because, like a lot of etymology apocrypha, it sounds a little too convenient to really smell like truth. The thing about natural rubber is that it, like me, is quite susceptible to changes in temperature. Too warm and it's basically sticky goo. Too cold and it becomes brittle and cracks. In 1839, Charles Goodyear discovered that you could combat much of that with the addition of some sulfur, soot, and heat in a process called vulcanization. When rubber is vulcanized, it retains its elasticity, but becomes stronger and less sticky. Charles wasn't the founder of the Goodyear Tire Company, though. He had died broke 40 years before the company, which was named in his honor, was started. Now that rubber could be useful, and there was a whole industrial revolution going on, rubber trees were planted on a large scale in countries all around the tropics. India, Ceylon, present-day Sri Lanka, and Indonesia, for example. The demand for rubber had soared by the end of the 19th century, when clever sausages decided to put internal combustion engines atop four rubber tires and synthetic alternatives made from crude oil were needed to meet the increased demand. So now it's the 1940s, and we've got a lot of alternatives to natural rubber, which is handy since the first half of the decade saw a lot of personnel and materiel being moved around the Western Front, the Eastern Front, and the Pacific Theater. In 1949, Peter Genin, a Russian-American sculptor, created the design that would become the first commercially successful rubber duck. He patented his duck and produced it as a floating toy, the uncapsizable duck, he called it, meaning that it would always float upright. His toy sold 50 million units before the patent expired 14 years later, and the duck was fair game for eager competitors. For more on patents, copyright, and such like, check out our episodes Patent Schmattend and Copy Wrong. Another key year in l'histoire de Canard was 1970. That was the worst French ever, but I'm not going to go back and re-record it. Sorry, y'all. On February 25th, 
a beloved burnt orange Jim Henson puppet in his first solo segment, held up a sassy little yellow duck and began to sing. Oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Data point of one, I haven't taken a bath in 20 plus years. Now, I shower like a normal person, and I've been partially submerged in the tiny personal pool in the ensuite, but I'm not a bath person. That being said, I do own a rubber duck. It's covered in rhinestones, as are many mundane household items, after my seven-year trip as a burlesque dancer. I did burlesque to this song. Not a word of a lie. The song Rubber Ducky, written by Sesame Street head writer Jeff Moss, wasn't only a hit with the under fives. It was released as a single, ye olde 45 RPM record, and became a certifiable mainstream hit. It was especially popular in urban settings, where the show is set and much of the viewership lives. It sold over 100 million copies and peaked at number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 that September. It got as high as number 10 in Australia. Good on ya. This wasn't the only time the voice of Jim Henson charted, either. See also getting the number 25 spot in 1979 as Kermit the Frog singing Rainbow Connection. I actually produced two years of a Jim Henson tribute burlesque show, which the Rubber Ducky Act wasn't even for, and we would always close with Rainbow Connection. It's good if you can get them laughing. It's great if you can get them crying. Moss also wrote I Love Trash, which I almost did a routine to, and Nasty Dan, a song that Johnny Cash sang to Oscar on an episode of Sesame Street and later put on his Johnny Cash children's album. Also interesting to note, Johnny Cash put out a children's album, further illustrating that people are complex, flawed, wonderful creatures and that I can still be knocked flat surprised with what I find doing my research. Rubber Ducky was nominated for a Grammy, but narrowly lost to the Sesame Street Book and Record, which the song is also on, so flawless victory. Rubber Ducky continues to be popular, with official recordings in Chinese, French, German, Hebrew, Spanish, Dutch, just to name a few. In 1996, a German version of the song sold 1.8 million copies. Rubber Ducky, it seems, we're all awfully fond of you. And I'm awfully fond of the folks who take time out of their day to review the podcast or the Your Brain on Facts book. This is the last podcast review I have presently, and I've only got one more for the book. So if you'd like the ego boost of having your opinion read out to thousands of people, leave us a review. But this one comes from MKZ23 over at podchaser.com. Whether it's a Wednesday morning pep talk on the ride to work, the salve for a Friday afternoon ride home, or just motivation to get in a few more kilometers on a workout, Wyboff and Moxie never fail to be perfect cycling companions. With a fantastic mix of humor, esoteric knowledge, and a smooth, sultry delivery that keeps me wanting just one more episode, this is one of the best podcasts I've ever had the privilege of listening to. Well, tell us what you really feel. Thank you for that, MKZ23. And also, 
And always, giant thanks to the folks that support the show financially on Coffee or Ko-Fi. Take your pick. ko-fi.com slash yourbrainonfacts, as well as patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where folks got this episode early and ad-free. Supporters like Paul D., Pigeon, Ray, Araya and Irie, and top-tier supporters like Emication Likely and David N. Not to mention some folks who've been with me since the very beginning, like Nathan D., Seth, Adam Baum, and Michael K. One duck in one bathtub is nice, but if a little is good, a lot must be better. So how about thousands of ducks in a huge body of water? It's for charity if that sweetens the pot any. They're called rubber duck races or duck race derbies. People donate money to the organization that's raising funds by sponsoring a rubber duck. On the big day, all the ducks are dumped into a waterway, say the James River here in Richmond, as we used to do. The first ducky to float across the finish line bags its sponsor some prizes donated usually by big corporations. Rubber duck derbies can be found all over the world. The largest race, in the U.S. at least, is the annual Free Store Food Bank Rubber Duck Regatta in Cincinnati, Ohio. Since it started in 1994, the race has grown to over 100,000 ducks and raised a cumulative $5 million. One of the more famous rubber duck races is the Great Knoxville Rubber Duck Race, or should I say one of the more infamous. The Tennessee Supreme Court had ruled that the duck race was a lottery, and you can't just run your own lottery, that's done by the state. So the race was off. State law had to be updated to allow lotteries with special exceptions, so they could go back to racing over 40,000 ducks to benefit the Boys and Girls Club of Tennessee Valley. If that's taking it up to 10, let's crank the ducky delight up to 11. What if you dumped an entire cargo container of ducks? We've actually been answering that question since 1992 and learning shed loads about the ocean along the way. That year, a cargo ship in the North Pacific lost a shipping container on its way from China to the US that spilled nearly 29,000 rubber ducks and other bath toys into the ocean. Scientists like Curtis Ebsmeyer a self-described student of flotsometrics, the understanding of how things float around the waters of the world, have used the rubber duck disaster to study ocean currents in a way we never could have otherwise. Some ducks washed up in Hawaii, Alaska, South America, Newfoundland, Scotland, and even frozen in Arctic ice. They've been dubbed the friendly floaties, by devotees who have tracked their progress over the years. Among these famous fowl are the 2,000 or so that still circulate in the currents of the North Pacific Gyre, a vortex of currents that stretches between Japan and Southeast Alaska. We always knew that this gyre existed, said Ebsmeyer, but until the ducks came along, we didn't know how long it took to complete a circuit. Think of it like knowing where and how the planets move through the solar system, but not how long their orbit takes. The North Pacific Gyre takes three years, by the way. If you've been picturing a cute aquatic carousel of happily bobbing brightly colored toys, I am sorry to yuck your yum. 
but they're part of the Great Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch, a post-industrial late-stage capitalism charybdis. Some of the trash got there the same way the rubber duckies did, via lost shipping containers, an alarmingly common occurrence. It's hard to say how many of these semi-trailer-sized metal boxes of consumer goods go into the drink each year, but estimates range from several hundred to 10,000 per year. And that's still only a thin sliver of the pollution pie chart. Today we know there are as many as 11 major gyres across the world's oceans, and all of them are potential vestibules for the world's trash. The durability of plastic is all well and good while you own it, but it means that whatever you just threw away is pretty much here for good. The friendly floaties illustrate that all the world's oceans are really one big connected system and that plastic persists for a very long time. Ducks are still washing up in pretty good nick. Hell, people still find plastic stuff from World War II battles that's been in the sea for more than 70 years. Now, telling you about lost ducks is all well and good, but what if you could see it for yourself? We weren't filming every square inch of the planet at all times back in 1992, so this calls for a dramatic reenactment. But how do you dramatically reenact a minor environmental disaster without creating an actual environmental disaster. That was the challenge before a BBC film crew working on Blue Planet 2. For starters, and most importantly, you need to pick up after yourself. Everything you put into the ocean must be accounted for at the end of the day. Leave no drake behind. 30 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, armed with a camera drone, volunteers, and lots of nets, the crew dumped 250 ducks into the middle of the open ocean. They didn't quite make it back to the UK with all 250, though. The Costa Rican members of the team asked to keep some as souvenirs. And now a word from our sponsors. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. A lot happens every day. 
Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Along the lines of, would you rather fight a horse-sized duck or a dozen duck-sized horses? If you don't like the sound of a lot of small ducks, I have a few ginormous ones for you. Last year in Maine, folks headed to their boats in Belfast Harbor found a 25-foot-tall, bright yellow inflatable duck staring back at them. On its juicy duck breast was emblazoned the simple word, joy. Whose was it? Why was it there? Was it advertising something? Was this art? Was it a message? Nobody knows. The only clue, which showed up later, was a note pinned to the Harbor Master's Office bulletin board saying the duck was a gift from anonymous Benequackers who live in the Land of Misfit Toys, USA which is what a friend of mine calls her house. Hmm, suspicious, one would say. If you get that reference, by the way, at me on social media. But the duck was moored in a spot where it wasn't actually in anyone's way. So Harbor Master Catherine Given just let it be. Folks started coming in to the town of 6,000 to see it. Then a few weeks later, poof, duck gone. Given suspected the duck had been removed ahead of Tropical Storm Henri, or perhaps September was just duck hunting season. Some people loved it, she said. They were really upset when it left. It was fun while it lasted. That was when the note had appeared on the bulletin board. Joy simply is foul play. Yes, they spelled it with a W. In this day and age of such bitter divisiveness in our country, We wanted to put forth a reminder of our commonalities instead of our differences. Nothing embodies childhood more than being in a warm bath with your rubber ducky. The joy of not having a care in the world other than having to remember to wash behind your ears. The letter indicated that after departing Belfast, the duck might land somewhere else. But so far, she hasn't resurfaced. Some ducks, though, show up like superheroes when they're needed. In 2020, rubber ducks, many in the form of pool inner tubes, the kind you sit in or put around your waist, became one of the symbols adopted by protesters in Thailand in 2020. They sought the removal of Prime Minister Prayath Chanocha and reform of the Thai monarchy, marching in the streets, singing, Do You Hear the People Sing from Les Mis?, and displaying the three-finger salute. That's how a source article described it, and I gave it a Google to see if it was a rude gesture in Thailand, like the Brits giving the two-fingered salute, aka the V. But it's actually the gesture from The Hunger Games. Still, that makes for a unique protest. 
Some say the ducks got involved as a joke, while some protesters claim the rubber ducks were used to mock the government and the monarchy. They first appeared in a gathering of protesters outside the police headquarters in Bangkok on what would be the most violent day of demonstrations. The protesters used the duck floaties as shields and advanced toward the police who were hitting them with water cannons. Versions of these rubber ducks were seen during the 2017 and 2018 anti-corruption protests in Russia, calling for the resignation of Vladimir Putin and his government. Better luck next time, guys. The ducks also surfaced during protests last year in Hong Kong, where protesters confronted police and were photographed carrying small plastic ducks. One iconic image from these protests in Hong Kong shows a battalion of police standing on one side of the road and a small yellow duck right in the foreground. A yellow duck was the mascot for 2016 protests calling for the impeachment of Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff. This giant inflatable duck had black X's instead of eyes, and the slogan, Chega de pegar o pato, and apologies to anyone who speaks Portuguese in the entire world, in red letters across its belly, which I'm told roughly translates to time to pay the piper. The giant duck was commissioned by a powerful Brazilian industrial group to use in protests against corruption and high taxes. But it started making appearances in demonstrations against the president. But the president wasn't the protesters' only problem. They also had to contend with Florentine Hoffman. Hoffman is a Dutch artist best known for fun, giant versions of everyday things and big urban art installations like the Hippopotams, a 2014 installation on the Thames River in London of, you guessed it, a hippo. If you were flexing your Latin and thought I was going to say horse, my apologies. In 2007, Hoffman debuted the creatively named Rubber Duck, a series of 50-foot-high inflatable yellow duckies that appeared in cities around the world. By making huge sculptures, you downsize the human, Hoffman told Bloomberg. That takes away our ego and makes us communicate easier with each other. The sculpture, if you want to call it that, is made out of a PVC pipe skeleton seated on a giant pontoon and skinned with plastic that's kept inflated, most times, with the help of a generator. The duck would automatically deflate if wind speeds got above a certain threshold, or if it got punctured, as in Philadelphia, or worse, the 2014 duck that was sunk by a typhoon never to be seen again. Over the course of a decade, Rubber Duck went to places like Hong Kong, Toronto, Osaka, Sydney, Los Angeles, and bizarrely, Norfolk, Virginia, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. For those in foreign parts, there's a reason you don't see aliens in movies attacking Pittsburgh and Norfolk. I mean, they're fine. I live two hours from Norfolk, but they're no Sao Paulo. Rather than being one duck touring the world, each year's rubber duck was created in or near the city that it was visiting. This comes into play big time with the Brazil situation. Bonus fact, while rubber duck was in Beijing in 2013, Chinese authorities blocked internet searches for giant yellow duck after an artist Photoshop swapped the rubber duck with the tanks in the iconic Tank Man photo from the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. 
Rubber duck attracts tourists when it's in town, so yay for local economy. But don't get too excited. Hoffman keeps his duck on a short leash, known as copyright. Hoffman's decision to enforce copyright over all rubber ducks when his art project is in town hasn't won him a lot of friends, as it funnels the cash flow generated only into certain approved official channels. Cross that line, and he's liable to sue you, or simply take his duck and go home. Enter Player 2, Greg Semborski, the go-to guy for everything concerning large or mega-special event productions, at least according to his LinkedIn page. He made an even bigger duck, which he and his business partner called Mama Duck, and began renting it out to cities like Ontario, which is where it was when Hoffman's people issued this statement. In 2014, Studio Florentine Hoffman retained Mr. Craig Samborski to assist in the production of our art installation in Los Angeles. Since that time, Mr. Samborski has been using our patterns, our design, and our intellectual property to profit off what was supposed to be a public art installation. By renting the duck at exorbitant rates against the wishes of its creator, Mr. Samborski not only is stealing this joy from the public, he is stealing from the legitimate artist and creator of this exhibit. Samborski and his partner, Ryan Whaley, while not denying that they used Hoffman's patterns, maintained that their design is based on the original toy and was well in the public domain. Even their version could be copied. The Canada situation parallels Brazil pretty closely. It is exactly our design and our specific technical patterns, said Hoffman's rep in a BBC Brazil interview. Changing the eyes doesn't change our technical design of the shape and beak. The same factory that produced Hoffman's official rubber duck also produced the one for the protests. The factory owner, Denilson Sousa, has maintained his innocence, for lack of a better phrase, stating that he would never risk his company's reputation like that. But Mr. Hoffman's team said the factory, quote, made a very unwise decision, unquote, and that he considered it illegal use of the exact design and therefore copyright infringement. And as is so often the case, everyone reported on the outrage, but nobody reported on the outcome. If you've ever caught wind of Hoffman v. Brazil, let me know on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche, where you can watch part of the episode being recorded live. I can't tell you when, because I never know when I'm going to record. You just have to follow me to find out. Now, even when people aren't ripping them off, life isn't easy for Hoffman's ducks. In 2013, rubber duck deflated without official leave in Hong Kong's Victoria Harbor. A few months later, it was in Taiwan's Keelung Port, where it suddenly burst in front of the gathering crowd. That was better at least than Belgium, where a man stabbed the duck 42 times for reasons I'm sure he felt quite passionate about in the moment. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. They never did find out who was leaving all of those rubber ducks around Mark Twain Elementary School. Most of them appeared in the library, and the librarian stopped counting after 200. But whatever this was meant to be or to do, the school made sure it was something positive, 
like motivating the kids to finish their reading assignments with the reward of getting their picture taken with their favorite duck. The school would like to thank the person who did this, but the ducks aren't talking. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network, along with such great shows as the Investing for Beginners podcast, Kick-Ass News, Movie Therapy, and My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Check them out at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.